Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, well, it was wonderful to see how our recent episodes on the chariots in antiquity with the legendary Mike Lodes has been received. And we've got another chariot episode today because one type of chariot we didn't really focus on. And this was the scythed chariot, mainly of ancient Persia, of the ancient Near East, not really as much to do with late Iron Age Britain, or that the archaeology can tell us so far anyway. We're going to be focusing in on the Scythe Chariot today. If you were at Chalk Valley recently, if you came to our incredible reenactment of the Battle of Galgamela, Alexander the Great's one of his most famous, most remarkable victories, you would have seen how we used a certain member of the audience to be a Scythe Chariot at the Battle of Galgamela and the infamous end they met that day. So today you're going to be learning all about the Scythe Chariot in ancient warfare. And joining me, I have got back on the show Dr. Sylvanan Gerard. Sylvanan has come on the podcast once before, really in our really early stages, to talk all about war elephants. She was fantastic. We particularly focused on the Hellenistic Near East, the greatest area of ancient history, if I say so myself. We looked at their use by Seleucids and the Seleucids once again will play a key role in this discussion. Because the Seleucid Empire, this incredible, huge, ancient superpower, it had a wide array of unusual, shall we say, bizarre military units. And the Scythe Chariots was definitely one of those. So I've been rambling on for long enough now. Here is the one and only Sylvanan. Sylvanan, it is great to have you back on the podcast. It's great to be here, so thanks for inviting me again. It's really fun to be on the show. No problem at all. You're renowned for your focus on these incredible elements of ancient Hellenistic warfare. Last time we were talking about war elephants in the Seleucid army. This time we're talking about mainly scythed chariots, because Sylvanan... We famously see the scythes on the Boudicca statue on Embankment in London, but that's historically incorrect for Iron Age chariots. However, we do hear of scythed chariots in the ancient Near East. Yeah, so scythed chariots are really, really interesting weapons. I obviously focus in the Near East, and that is where we see the chariots and we're used to sort of dealing with sort of chariot powers from like the Assyrians and stuff. So it's that kind of conception that lingers on in the Near East. And Scythe chariots are really, really fascinating units, as we will hopefully get to see. 
we will hopefully get to see to visualize they are super super cool ancient contraptions and sylvanan this is a tricky question i know but when and where do we think the scythe chariot originates right yeah so as you say the question of the origin of the scythe chariots is a complicated one i mean we're used to scholarship disagreeing that's what we do as scholars we disagree with each other and we say no that's not right and we keep the debate going the problem is we also have disagreements in the ancient sources as well so it's not entirely sure what is going on so xenophon's cyropedia tells us one thing catesius's persica tells us another thing so xenophon his cyropedia is sort of a semi-fictional story about cyrus the great so we might want to question how far it's actually representing historical realities. And Xenophon tells us that Cyrus the Great invented the scythe chariots. And this is in the run-up to the Battle of Sardis in 547-546 BC. He credits him with inventing the chariot. And this sort of fits with Xenophon's theme in this work, that Cyrus is the one who creates this Persian army. He is credited with lots of different inventions for the Persian army and really making it into this power. Now, some of what Xenophon tells us is based on historical fact. So Xenophon had personal experience fighting against the Persians. So some of what he describes is certainly true of later Persian armies, even if it's not true of the time for Cyrus the Great. And we know Xenophon did see scythe chariots in action. So Xenophon served as a mercenary in the 10,000 Greeks who served for Cyrus the Younger. He was at the Battle of Kunaxa in 401 BC, so he did see scythe chariots. So when he describes them, you know, there's a good chance he's drawing on his real experiences, and that's more than we can say for everyone else who describes them, because no one else actually saw them in action. But whether Cyrus the Great invented them, that's a more complicated question. I mean, it would tie in a little bit to Neffedkin's article in 2004. He doesn't say that Cyrus the Great invented them, but he does credit the Achaemenid Persians with their invention. And he says, well, we don't hear of them in Herodotus's account of the Persian Wars. Aeschylus doesn't tell us about them when he's describing the Persian army. So he says they didn't exist before then, because if they did, we'd hear about them. And we know they definitely existed at Kunaxa because we've got Xenophon's account of them. So he's like, well, they must have then been invented in that time period. And he says, he credits Artaxerxes I for inventing them and says that this is when he's going to campaign against Egypt. And he, specifically, he wants a weapon that can fight against the Egyptians' hoplite mercenaries. So the Egyptians have got mercenaries from, I think it's Athens, but Greece in general, and the hoplites, and he wants something that can combat the hoplites. Because he says, cavalry can't charge hoplite phalanxes very well. I mean, horses do not want to charge spears. If you're going to charge a phalanx, you're going to want to try and either get a gap in the line or take it in its unarmed flanks or rear. You're not going to want to charge the spears. Now, the jury is still out as to whether you can successfully charge a hoplite phalanx from the front. Sears and Willicks have suggested it is actually possible with regards to whether Alexander did that at the Battle of Chironea in 336 BC. Either way, 
even if you can do it, your horses are not going to come out very well for that. And horses are expensive. You're not going to want to risk your cavalry by charging the spear wall. It's not going to end very well. So he says, cavalry can't do that. So you create the scythe chariots and they're a lot more aggressive. They're better at this sort of shock value. That's how you're going to puncture through the hoplites. There is a slight problem with that, though, that, well, if a horse that's acting as cavalry can't charge spears, I want to ask, well, why do you think that a horse that's pulling a chariot can charge spears? Because it's still a horse. It still goes with the limitations of horses. So I do have a problem when we say, oh, you know, they're meant to charge hoplites because it's like, that's not really how horses work. And when we do see the chariots engage hoplite phalanxes like at Kunaxa, they're ridiculously ineffective, almost ludicrously so. They just do not work. And again, when we see them at Galgamela attack Alexander's army, again, they're not effective. So there are reasons for questioning whether Nefertkin's argument that that is why they're invented is actually correct. And when we move to our other ancient source, so I mentioned Ctesias, he gives us a very different account. He says that the um, legendary Babylonian king Ninus, who is the husband of the legendary Babylonian queen Semiramis, that he had 10,000 chariots in his army. So this is sort of the Neo-Assyrian period. It's much, much earlier. Now, there's lots in Ctesias that is like sort of semi-fictional, semi-mythical. Semiramis is believed to have been based on a Babylonian queen, I think, Shemuramat. So again, there's things we might want to question in Ctesias's work. And Ctesias is very, very fragmentary. This bit about the chariots is preserved in Diodorus. So again, there's preservation issues with this source. But this idea links to what Rop in 2013 said that Rob says, Nefidkin's argument doesn't really work. And says, actually, we should be looking much earlier at the Neo-Syrians. These are a chariot power anyway. But at this point in the reign, I think, of Shemuramat, we're moving into a case where the lighter chariots are being replaced by cavalry because cavalry can do the job much better than chariots. And that's something we see across the ancient world, that chariots are slowly overtaken by the cavalry because cavalry can do much of the same jobs, and they're much better. But Rapp also says that at this period, the chariots that do survive are becoming heavier and more for that close combat shock value. So Rapp suggests that it's here where we see the scythe chariot actually being invented. And he says that the reason you don't actually see it in the Persian Wars and it isn't mentioned is because the terrain of the Persian Wars and that campaign isn't suitable for scythe chariots. And that's one of the major things when we deal with scythe chariots, that you need very particular terrain to, for them to actually work. They need large open plains. It needs to be very flat. Otherwise, they're not going to work. And Greece is not suitable for that sort of thing. So you could argue, well, Darius and Xerxes didn't bring them because they just know that they're not going to work there. And no one wants to have to lug all these chariots all the way to Greece if you can't even use them. So Rob says they're more suited for those large plains in Mesopotamia in the Middle East, and that's where they were invented. But yeah, the question of their origin is incredibly complex. I mean, I'm interested in more from a Seleucid point of view, so 
doesn't matter to me too much when they were invented. I'm more interested that this is an Achaemenid thing they've inherited. It's not a Greco-Macedonian thing. It's something they've inherited from their Achaemenid and Middle Eastern predecessors. Sylvanan, it's all good. I get the hint. We'll be getting to the Seleucids as quickly as we can. But just a little bit longer on this, because it does sound, Sylvanan, and as you've mentioned, that the Scythe Chariot, it really seems to be the epitome of the heavy shock attack form of chariot. Yeah, that if you are wanting a chariot for close combat, this is the sort of chariot that you want. I mean, I'm not going to say it's the best kind of thing you can use, because they have a rather limited success. So there are times when they're very useful. There are also times when they're just awful, as we will see. But if you are in, you know, you want chariots. That's what you really want in your army. And you want something that is going to look terrifying and also pack a punch, assuming that you can actually engage properly with it. Then, yeah, scythe chariots are the sort of thing that you're going to want. Other chariots tend more to be used where you would put archers on them and you can ride rapidly round and fire at them. But as I said, these very quickly get taken over by cavalry because cavalry can do the same thing and they can move a lot easier because they're not lugging a chariot behind them that you don't want tipping over. I'm glad you mentioned that, Sylvanan, because sometimes we think of chariots either as, as battle taxis or having a passenger or in some case two passengers. But with the Scythe chariot, it sounds like those passengers, they aren't really needed because if the cart itself is the weapon and like it's like an ancient porcupine of all these weapons spiking out of them like there's no need for the passengers like the only person you need is the driver and the deadly nature of it is the cart itself yeah so the question is is there a passenger on scythe chariots is something we don't really know xenophon doesn't tell us when he when he describes them in the Cyropedia, he just says you know it's got a box that's around the drivers to keep the driver safe and the driver will have some armour on. But he doesn't say whether anyone else is in that chariot. Now, some scholars think there are other people and you might want to put one or two other people on there as well. But as you said, like it's the scythes as well that are part of the attack. So maybe you don't need other people there. And we don't really know. And the problem when we talk about scythe chariots is we've no iconographic and pictorial representations of them so we can't look at a picture and go oh so that's what they look like and that's again the problem when we talk about the origin we've got lots of lovely Assyrian chariots and sculptures of them none with scythe so we can't say oh look scythe chariots so we only have the descriptions and Xenophon who's the one who gives us the best description doesn't actually mention that so Moving on, we're getting closer to the Seleucids, I promise, or Seleucids. I'll say both and it might confuse people, but Seleucids, Seleucids, same thing. Now, you mentioned earlier Galgamela, so let's go on to Alexander. Let's go on to his clash, his great clash against King Darius and the Persians at Galgamela. Because Sylvanan, Scythe chariots, they do play a part in the run-up to and during the battle. Yes, yeah, so the Battle of Galgamela is sort of like Darius's last major attempt to stop Alexander. And it's where we get the whole Persian army. He's managed to mobilise, like, everybody. I mean, there are even elephants, supposedly, at this battle. We don't think they do anything. but So it's like this massive array of, look at everything I've got. And he has chariots with him. And before this battle, he's very careful that he picks a place where his chariots can work. And we're told that he makes sure he flattens all the ground to get rid of any obstacles because... 
Chariots need flat ground. You don't want them tipping over when you're attempting to charge your opponent. That's not going to work. And you're going to need, you know, nice dry conditions as well. If it's wet and muddy, your chariots are going to get stuck. And that's something we see with Porus's chariots in India in the run-up to the Hydaspas. They're not scythe chariots, but the conditions are very muddy. They get stuck in the mud. They don't do anything. So Darius is very um, cautious about where he's going to use them. And we're told that during the battle, he gets a bit worried that the Macedonians are moving towards the more rougher ground. And it's like, well, if they go there, my chariots will be useless because they're just not going to work. In the battle itself, Arian just tells us, right, the chariots are useless. Diodorus and Quintus Curtius, though, do tell us the chariots have some effect at first, that they do cause some destruction in the front troops. And these are probably the skirmish troops rather than the actual phalanx of Alexander's army. Because all of our sources agree that Alexander has, you know, he's anticipated that these chariots are going to be there, they're going to be a problem. And he has his men open up gaps in their phalanx so that the chariots can pass through them. And as they pass through them, they fire lots of missiles at them, you know, upset the horses. And none of the phalanx is really killed by it because you've just opened a gap and let them come past. Now, that does require a lot of discipline to be able to get your men to do that. But it's something that works very, very well. And that is the problem with scythe chariots. If you're against someone who knows what to do and has a disciplined army, they can just open a gap and let them through. And we see a similar thing at Zama with Hannibal's elephants that Scipio just deliberately leaves lanes in between his army and funnels the elephants through them so that they don't trample everybody, they don't have to fight against them, and just neutralise them that way. So, yes, the chariots are at Galgamela, but they don't really do much. I think one of our sources, see the Quintus Curtius or Diodorus, says they are a little terrifying, the Macedonians are a little bit worried about them, but they're not overly worried. They have a plan to defeat them. In one of them, they make a lot of noise as well, like they bang their shields and that scares the horses and the horses fall back and then that causes chaos behind on them. So it's like, yes, they're there. They're not that great. And this is the problem or the interesting thing with scythe chariots is their limited success. They do have sometimes spectacular successes. So the earlier battle of Daskaleum, Pharnabatsus uses them in 395 BC and completely annihilates the Greek infantry he's against. It is worth noting that these Greek infantry are not in formation at that time. So they're caught off guard. So they can have wonderful success. They can also be absolutely useless. And that's the really interesting thing that when we get into later periods, like, why are we still using them? I thought everyone had agreed that they're not that great, but they're still being used. And that's one of the fascinating things about this weapon. I'm glad you mentioned that event in 395 too, because we said we've gone from Cunaxa to Galgamela, two events where it seems like the Scythe Chariots, they don't really cover themselves in glory, but you do have this other event where it seems that they perform much better. So following Galgamela, if we stay in the ancient Near East, you mentioned how Alexander does face chariots later in India, but they're not Scythe Chariots. So Sylvanan, when do we next hear of Scythe chariots. I believe we're getting towards the time period that your main love is. Yes, so the first thing to note with size chariots is they are appear very sporadically. We hear of them here, then they disappear, and then they appear again, and then they disappear. So, as I said, we hear of them at Kunaxa. Then we hear of them again at 395, so that's not too much of a gap. 
that's fine. And then we don't hear of them until Galgamela, which is 331. So that's a big gap. And you're like, okay. And then we don't hear of them again until 301 BC at the Battle of Ipsus. And we're told that Seleucus has brought some chariots, scythe chariots with him. Now, unfortunately, we have absolutely no idea what they were doing at that battle, whether they were even used, because our battle description of Ipsus isn't very good. It's only in Plutarch and there are problems with it. And our traditional reconstructions of that battle don't include the scythe chariots. It's hard to see how they would fit in that battle. So it's possible that they were brought up and weren't used, that they're just there. It's possible they were used and we don't actually hear about it. I think we should avoid Barkochva's argument that, well, Seleucus didn't use them because they're superfluous. He doesn't think that they're any good. And it's like, well, they used them again not that long later at the Battle of Sehestica in 285 BC. So we can't think that they're useless. Otherwise, why is he still using them? So we hear of them at Ipsus, but we don't actually know what they do. And then we hear of them again at 285 BC in the run-up to Sehestica. And again, this is only recorded in Plutarch. And all he says is that they charge Demetrius, Demetrius manages to move out of the way, and Demetrius wins. And that's all we hear. So we don't really know what is going on there either. And this is frustrating because it's the only instance where we hear of the Seleucids actually being able to attack with those chariots. Because the chariots then disappear again from the record until the battle against the rebel satrap Molon in 220 BC. So it's like, that's again a very long time period of where we don't hear about them. And you could say, well, to be honest, we don't actually know very much in between Seleucus and Antiochus I and Antiochus III, that we already have a silence in the sources there anyway. So maybe the Seleucids are using them, we just don't hear about it. But it does fit the sort of sporadic use of chariots elsewhere as well. And as I said, you need very particular battle conditions for chariots, so maybe it's a case that we haven't used them because there isn't anywhere to use them that they will actually perform well. Alternatively, you might say, well, maybe they all thought they were terrible and Molon just thinks, I like those, I'm going to bring some of those. <laughs> because it's just really weird to see them pop up again when you've not heard them for so long. So Molon has, he doesn't have many scythe chariots with him. And this battle is really interesting because this is two Seleucid armies against each other. So Molon was the satrap of Media, which is sort of southwestern Iran in modern day place. And he's rebelled against the Seleucid king Antiochus III. And Antiochus has now brought his army to actually deal with this problem. And we're told that Antiochus has elephants, so he's put them across the front of his army. And Polybius uses very, very similar words in his Greek, to describe Molon's chariots across the front of his army. So I would say that they're possibly opposite each other in the line, but we really don't know. We don't know where they are. We're not told about what they do in the battle. So again, we know he's got chariots. We know they're at the front. We don't know what else he's doing. And then chariots disappear again until their famous appearance at Magnesia in 190 BC. So it is really weird to see chariots appear, then disappear, then appear, then disappear. And trying to work out what is going on there is something that is very interesting, but hard to tell. Uh, so Sylvania, you mentioned a lot of names there. So I think let's clarify a few of those quickly. So Ipsus, first of all, the Battle of Ipsus, the great climax and one of the most extraordinary battles of ancient history, the great climax of the Wars of the Successors. 
The chariots you mentioned, they don't seem to play a part, but they're fighting in Seleucus's army. Seleucus who commands that Babylon region, so the region of the Persians and all that, so where we normally associate the scythe chariots. You mentioned Demetrius a bit later at that next clash, who's another one of these successes. So it's quite interesting you find Seleucus with scythe chariots fighting Demetrius from Plutarch that you mentioned. And of course, as you said, we've gone on now to Antiochus III for a few generations later of the Seleucids. And you've talked about Molon and how we have this mention of the scythe chariots again then. The Seleucid scythed chariots at this time, let's say at the start of the second century BC. So we've gone on quite a bit now, just after Molon. We're still in the reign of Antiochus III. Do we know anything about how they looked now? Are they still quite similar to how they would have looked previously? I mean, what's the description of them now? Right. So, as I said, when we talk about what the scythe chariots look like, we are hampered by we don't have any pictures of them. So we can't look and go, oh, so that's what the ancients knew what they looked like. These are people who saw these chariots and this is how they depicted them. So that is a problem. I mean, sure, we have lots of depictions of chariots, but not with scythes. So we're limited to those who actually describe them. And Xenophon, as I've said, is our best description. You know, that they've got four horses. These are yoked side by side. Yes, it is more efficient to yoke them one behind the other, but the ancient world doesn't have very good harnesses for its horses like that, so they yoke them side by side. And that means not only do you need to be able to afford four horses and four very bulky, strong horses because they've got a Polish chariot, you also have to train those horses to work together because it's not going to work if some horses want to go one way and some want to go another way. Your chariot is just not going to work. So you have to train those horses to work together as a team. So already that's expensive. And then Xenophon tells us they've got strong timbers and strong axles because you don't want them tipping over. It has like a box around the driver or, you know, something to protect the driver, basically. And it's got scythes either on the axles or the wheels. And he says they're about two cubits long, which is about 91 centimetres. And they're poking out. And then they've got scythes also that point towards the ground. And Livy tells us later at the Battle of Magnesia, this is to catch anyone who falls underneath the chariot. So they look pretty terrifying. And that psychological dimension is part and parcel of why you're wanting to use them. Because if you can terrify your opponent that they do not want to stand there and let them come towards them, you know, that's part of your battle won already. So that is our probably best description of them because we know Xenophon saw them. Everybody else is working off what they've heard and it starts to get a bit more confused. So if we fast forward to the Seleucid chariots, Livy describes them for the Battle of Magnesia. And on the whole, the description is very similar, but he says that they also have these two horn-like projections attached to the yoke. So what holds the horses? And he says that they're, I think it's 10 cubits long, which is about four and a half metres or something. And that length is incredible when you think it's basically like, you know, tie sarissas to the chariot. And because it's such an incredible length, people have really been stuck over that detail. I mean, if the spikes are meant to point forwards, then maybe the length isn't too insane because they'd have to actually project beyond the horses if you want them to do anything. But personally, I think that's going to be a bit unwieldy. That If you just imagine you've tied two spears to it, it's like, that doesn't seem very stable. It doesn't seem like a good idea. I mean, it sounds like kebab skewers, but at the same time, completely unruly. Yeah, so... Others have questioned that, and I would question that. I'm not entirely sure that that's right. So some people have said that, well, rather than decum, 10 in Livia's Latin, it should say duo, two. And they should be two cubits long, which would make them 91 centimetres, 
that's a bit more reasonable. Now, Xenophon doesn't mention any of those spikes. So you could say, well, Livy's just making things up. <laughs> Livy's got confused. And it's not the first time that Livy gets confused about battles. His account of Kynocephali is just insane. He has the Macedonian phalanx put down their spears and to draw their swords, which is just completely wrong. But when we look at, say, the chariots that Darius has at Galgamela, Diodorus and Quintus Curtius do mention some kind of other spikes that are there. And Diodorus mentions that they do have some spikes, but these are three spans long, which would make them about 69 centimetres. So that would support the idea that Livy's 10 cubits is far too long, that they should be more about two cubits, which would make them 91, a lot shorter. And then these spikes possibly either project forwards or they might even project to the sides so that when you run the chariot, it can also catch anyone who's either side of the chariot. And that would fit with what we see when Mithridates later uses them. And we've got this grisly detail in Appian about them cutting men in half, because that would then be like halfway up you anyways, rather than all the scythes being at the bottom, which would just probably get your feet. So it's possible then that those spikes that Livy mentions, they are genuine, they're just nowhere near as long as he tells us, or that the manuscript tradition tells us that they are. So this possibly means that the chariots have slightly evolved from when Xenophon saw them at Kunaxa, that there's been some modifications to the chariot. But other than that, we're very much limited in what we know about the chariots. I would say that they're still probably very similar, maybe some different spikes, maybe some changes, but we're not really told because we hardly ever see them on the battlefield anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we've been talking about it. We've been bigging up to this battle in particular that you mentioned, Magnesia, 190 BC. So we can lay the background to this battle, get the context for it. I mean, Sylvanan, what is the Battle of Magnesia? Talk me through the run-up to this battle. Right, so this is part of... The Romans are starting to look to the east. They're more interested in these eastern things. This is coming just after the, I think, the Second Macedonian War. So the Romans are campaigning in Greece and Macedon, and they're turning their eye to the east. And one of your major powers in the east is the Seleucid Empire. And Antiochus has been dabbling in Greece and interfering in Greece. So it's clear that these two powers are going to clash at some point. And in 191 BC, Antiochus does cross over into Greece and does fight the Romans. So there's a clash at Thermopylae where he's driven back by the Romans. I mean, Antiochus doesn't have a lot of troops with him in this Grecian campaign. He was hoping some of the Greeks and some of the Aetolians would actually come and join him and then they decide at the last minute they're not doing because they're probably scared of the Romans. He also hasn't brought everybody over because you don't want to bring your whole army to Greece and lose because that would be suicide. So he's only got a few troops, but he started to clash with Rome. And Magnesia is the culmination of those battles and skirmishes between the Seleucid Empire and Rome. It's the big fight that everybody knew was going to happen between the two. So Magnesia is in modern day Turkey or in that kind of area. It's got quite a nice big plain. So it's on paper, it's ideal for Hellenistic battles. So we're quite used to, like Polybius has this famous bit about how the legion is so much better than a Hellenistic phalanx. But on paper, scholars have said that this is the ideal battleground for the Hellenistic phalanx and for the Hellenistic army that had Antiochus stuck to standard 
procedures at this battle, he very possibly could have won it. Now, Magnesia is such an interesting battle, not just because it's this clash between the Seleucid Empire and the Romans, and has such important repercussions after this battle, when the Romans win and the Seleucids then lose Asia Minor and it starts to be a problem for the Seleucid Empire. So it's not just an interesting battle from that perspective, it's an interesting battle because the Seleucid army is just so odd at this point. We have the chariots, which we haven't really seen elsewhere. We've got camels in the battle. We've got the elephants doing strange things. We've got the cavalry on the right wing that's in an odd place. And you read this battle and you're like, what on earth is going on in this battle account? The chariots, though, I think are probably the most notable aspect of the Battle of Magnesia. And when you first read it, you're like, what on earth is going on here? Because this is probably the most infamous account of scythe chariots and the telltale of why scythe chariots can go very very badly if you don't use them right and if you aren't lucky that your opponent has never seen them before and doesn't know what they're doing Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin-chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velezquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
Well, Sylvanen, you've bigged it up. We're all really wanting to hear what happens then. So how does Antiochus deploy his scythed chariots? Right, so his scythed chariots are in front of his left wing. Now, if you intend to use your chariots in the battle, you typically put them in the front because you don't want to have to drive them through your own army to get to your enemy. So they tend to go in the front anyway. And also they look impressive. So you're going to want to, you know, scare your opponent. Look at all these scary things we've got. Look at all these wonderful things we've got. You know, showcase your power. And so much, particularly of the Seleucid line at Magnesia, is showing off to the Romans, look at the extent of my power. And I think Livy and Appian tell us that this battle line stretches, that you can't see one end from the other, because it is just huge. So it's part of showing off to the Romans. So they're in front of the left wing, they're next to the camels, they're in front of the cavalry on that wing. So that's quite standard. There's nothing too unusual about that. Because they're at the front, and I think even Appian says it, they're intended to open the battle. And as we see when we read those accounts, they are involved in the fighting at the beginning of the battle. The fighting, though, does not go the Seleucids' way. So they're told they were supposed to open the battle... The opposite Eumenes, who is the king of Pergamum, he's allied with the Romans. He's on the opposite wing of the Romans and he sees them. And Appian tells us that, you know, he's not bothered about the others. He's concerned about the chariots. And that's interesting that, you know, so Eumenes is taking this threat seriously, that he is concerned that the chariots are there. But he's, we're told he knows how to combat them. So he decides he's going to attack and he orders all his skirmish troops, his light cavalry, to pelt all those horses of the Seleucids that are with the chariots with missiles and cause them to panic. And that is exactly what they do. And this causes the horses to panic, they fall back, that panic spreads to the camels, it spreads to the other cavalry stationed behind them who then starts to run away and it causes absolute chaos in the Seleucid left wing. So that part of the wing very, very quickly collapses. That leaves the heavy cavalry on that wing exposed for Eumenes to charge into. And this is only the opening stages of the battle, but very quickly the Seleucid's entire left wing has collapsed. So it goes very badly for the Seleucids, and it is the chariots that cause that chaos. They are the ones... Okay, they were attacked, they didn't flip over and accidentally cause that chaos, but they're the reason that this chaos spreads. And Livy is particularly harsh in his judgment about them he says you know this was just ridiculous he calls them a ridiculous sideshow i think the latin is nani ludibrio and he says once this ridiculous sideshow is out of the way the chariots are off the battle the signal is given and the real battle the proper battle begins you know that this is just some ridiculous thing that happened at the beginning and just get them out of the way because they're just pathetic and I can understand where he's coming from because they cause absolute chaos. It is a complete fiasco. At the same time, by calling them this ridiculous sideshow, he does create this misleading impression that they weren't intended to be a proper part of the battle. So he gives this idea that this is just some sort of preliminary manoeuvre before the real battle starts. You know, the real troops actually get involved. And we can see that Eumenes did take their threat seriously. He doesn't think that they're ridiculous. And his attack is meant, he's deliberately causing that chaos. He wants those horses to panic 
so that he can strike a decisive blow against the enemy. This is a very calculated attack. This isn't some preliminary move before the fighting starts. This is a serious part of his plan at this point. And also, when Livy says, oh, they're a ridiculous sideshow, that also gives the impression that Antiochus doesn't think that they're any good and doesn't want to use them. And, okay, we don't know what Antiochus actually planned. We have to guess what he planned, and with the usual caveat that commanders don't always act logically, as we see in his actions on the right wing, where he just charges off and chases the Romans back to the camp and forgets what's happening on the battlefield, and does exactly what he did at Raffia and loses the battle because he isn't there. And you think he would have learnt from that mistake. But I would argue that he's brought those chariots for a reason. He's certainly not stupid. He does make mistakes on the battlefield, but he's not stupid. He has plenty of battle experience and he's put them in a very prominent position on his left wing. If he just wanted to bring them to show them off and then not use them, he didn't have to put them at the front of his army. So I would argue that he intends them to engage the opponents, the lighter troops on that Roman wing, and route that wing with the support of the camels and the lighter cavalry that would support the chariots in their attack so that then the heavier cavalry on that wing can then charge the now exposed flank of the Latin Allah and the Roman legions. That was intended as a very decisive attack, a nice combined arms sort of warfare attack on that wing, whilst he also on the other Seleucid wing charges the Romans from the other side. So I would say In theory, he's got this sort of like maybe pincer movement of the two wings attacking at once. That doesn't happen on either wing, as I said. On the right wing where he's stationed, he goes off charging the Romans to the camp and just doesn't turn into the exposed legion, which he should do. On the left wing with the chariots, okay, that might have been his plan. He wanted to attack the lighter troops on the Romans and expose that wing. It doesn't happen because Eumenes acts first. He decides to do basically the same thing, but on the Seleucid's left wing, and that entire wing collapses very, very quickly. And the panic created in those horses spreads to the other horses, spreads to the camels, and then spreads to the infantry on that wing that nobody really wants to be there, and it just becomes chaos. So that leaves the cataphracts and the companions on that wing They no longer have that protection of the other troops on the side. And sure, cavalry can move very fast, but heavy cavalry doesn't turn as fast as lighter cavalry. So that allows Eumenes to just charge straight into the side of them. And it is just then a complete mess. So when we talk about the chariots at Magnesia, it's like, well, they cause so much chaos. Why on earth were they brought there? What on earth is Antiochus doing And as far as we know, this is the only instance he ever uses them anyway. So it's like, why did he use them? And I'd say, well, since he does bring them, he must have had a plan. And the only way I can see that his plan was to use that combined attack to drive the opposing Roman wing. And it just doesn't happen. He just falls victim to the fact that Eumenes knows how to get around this. And scythe chariots don't always work. If they panic and fall back... It's not just a horse falling back on your troops. You've got that whole chariot. And obviously, if the horse panics, the chariot is probably going to tip over and just cause absolute chaos. I would argue that they're probably worse than elephants on the battlefield. And elephants get a bad rep for panicking. 
So I would say chariots, okay, chariots won't trample your own army, but they can cause absolute chaos, as they do at Magnesia. I mean, Savannah, that description right there, it's incredible. I mean, it's pretty horrific to visualise, but as those chariots are turned around, as they panic, and just carving these carts, which are complete with weapons, so these ancient cart, porcupine-like, as they go through their own lines, causing incredible damage. But it's so interesting what you say, because actually, Sylvanan, the amount of chaos which they cause, the amount of damage which they inflict on their own army, isn't this actually also a good example of actually how effective scythed chariots could be? Okay, it was of Antiochus's army, but the amount of morale-shattering damage they do and physical damage with all their weapons, if it had worked, it could have been really, really effective. Yeah, and that's the thing. They didn't work, and Livy is very dismissive of them. So we think, okay, they're useless. You know, look at the best they cause. But it is also, as you rightly say, it's one of those that if that had worked, we would have been like, okay, they have their problems, but they're actually not that bad. If you get them to work, they can cause a heck of a lot of damage. And the morale-shattering thing is a very important thing thing that's like psychological warfare is so important if you can shatter your enemy's morale that they don't want to stand firm they don't want to stay in formation that's part of your battle one and that's the thing when particularly when you introduce animals to the battlefield that they can panic and that panic can spread to other humans so it's like Eumenes has his cavalry if you could have terrified his cavalry that those horses don't want to be near those chariots that would have been very successful as I said, Antiochus could have won the Battle of Magnesia, but it didn't happen that way. And it just shows, you know, how quickly things can go wrong when animals or even men start to panic. So it's one of those that they can cause a heck of a lot of damage. They do have that battlefield potential. They're not necessarily the most reliable troop if you want to make sure it's the enemy that you're doing that to and not yourself. And as I said, that's why I drew the parallel with elephants, because they have a similar potential that they can trample your opponent but if they panic they can trample you and that's something we talked about the last time we absolutely did and i love the also that we could, the parallel of course with combined arms warfare this idea that of course elephants seem more effective if they got light infantry protecting them as they advance and interesting that suggestion which you put forward is that as the chariots were advancing there maybe had the light cavalry were intended to help support them which is really really interesting in itself but we've got to move on going to keep on to more Seleucids but after Magnesia because Magnesia does seem to be the high infamous point of the Scythe Chariots but we do hear of them in a couple of references in Seleucid armies in some way or form after Magnesia. We do but it is a lot more problematic at that point so I would argue that Magnesia is the last serious attempt by the Seleucids to use them. We do hear of them in the Maccabees so in the first book of the Maccabees we're told that Antiochus IV has some in his campaign against Egypt in 170 BC. This is generally dismissed by most scholars because like, Egypt isn't the best terrain for these scythe chariots. And we don't hear anything else of them. So maybe he did, but it seems unlikely that it's not going to be the best area to use the chariots. Then when we move into the Maccabean revolt, so Judas Maccabeus and his followers against the Seleucids, at the Battle of Beth Zechariah in 162 BC, the second book of the Maccabees tells us there are scythe chariots in the Seleucid army there as well. What is interesting here is our other accounts, so the first book of the Maccabees and the two different accounts in Josephus, do not mention the scythe chariots at all. 
I would argue they were not used at this battle. The terrain, for one, is certainly not ideal. This is a very mountainous area. All of our accounts agree that we're sort of in between the mountains and in between the defiles of the mountains at this point. This is not chariot ground. You are not going to want to use chariots here. And I would say that this is just more part and parcel of this idea in the Maccabees of emphasising how terrifying and huge and weird the Seleucid army is. Because there's a lot of biblical parallels, particularly in the Battle of Beth Zechariah, with David and Goliath. That David stood against, you know, this terrifying giant and you've got the small Jewish rebel army and their bravery and courage to stand against this humongous, this terrifying Seleucid army. So I think it's part and parcel of that to emphasise how big the Seleucid army is, how brave Judas Maccabeus and his followers are for standing up to them, rather than that they were actually seriously used on the battle here. So we do hear of chariots, they do pop up a little bit, but I would argue they're not really being used. Now, once we move past the Maccabean revolt, our sources for the Seleucid Empire become very, very fragmentary. So it's possible that they were used after that and we just don't hear about it. But I would argue personally that Magnesia has probably convinced a lot of Seleucid kings not to bother with them, that look at what happened at Magnesia, that we don't need to do that again. Fair enough, fair enough indeed. I mean... Just as an overview, because we're now going past the Seleucids. I mean, but I mean, it seems like the Scythe chariots they really become associated with the Seleucids. I mean, do we ever hear of the Scythe chariots again anywhere, or is this where they really start to vanish? So we do hear of Mithridates of Pontus using them against the Romans, and I think there are two occasions in particular where they're mentioned. The first is the Battle of Amnias in 89 BC, and it's here where we get Appian's grisly details about them chopping men in half. So they're very useful and very, very successful here, or it seems to be. And they terrify the Romans. The Romans are terrified that these chariots can just chop you in half and that people are all over the battlefield and it's just a mess and that this is terrifying. So that shows, again, they can be very, very successful. They can cause absolute destruction and they can have that severe impact on the morale of enemy troops. The, the psychological aspect, they're just terrifying to be against i mean it's bad enough to have horses charge at you it's natural human psychology to fear a horse that charges at you even if you know the horse isn't going to stand on you or it's going to do its best not to stand on you it's still terrifying to have it charge towards you and there's comparative evidence from the napoleonic period of a cavalry officer there saying you can see even veteran troops getting a bit nervous when the cavalry charges towards them even if they know how to deal with it even if it's not going to be a problem they naturally get a little bit nervous when these horses thunder towards them so if you imagine that it's not just a horse it's also this chariot with all these spikes and scythes and you've just seen some people over there get chopped up by it you're gonna i don't want to be here anymore i don't want to have to fight this this is terrifying so they're very, very successful there. We then hear of them a little bit later at the Battle of Chironea. This is not the same Battle of Chironea that Alexander's in, just to be confusing. So this is the Battle of Chironea in 86 BC. Again, Mithridates' army has chariots, but we're told they are useless. The Romans managed to combat them. In particular, I think they stopped them from getting up to speed. So that's another thing with chariots. You need enough space to get that chariot up to speed that if it comes to a stop, it's pretty much useless. It is helpless. It can't do anything. And you can't turn it round very easily because, you know, you're likely to flip the chariot at that point. So 
at Chironera, again, they're not very successful. So again, this ties into this limited success of the chariot that sometimes they can be useful, other times they're just an absolute nightmare on the battlefield. After that, I'm not as sure about whether we see chariots after that. It is moving out of my period. As I said, there's some sort of indications that maybe the Britons have scythe chariots, but I really don't know much about that. So I think the hints that maybe they do as to how accurate that is, I couldn't say. The only other instance that I know that's not a Seleucid army, not one of the major armies where we're told that there are scythe chariots, is the so-called elephant victory of Antiochus I in the late 270s BC, that the Galatians have invaded the Seleucid Empire and Antiochus has brought his army up. And we're told that the Galatians have scythe chariots in their army. Now, the problem is with this battle that it only survives in a much, much later source, Lucian's Zeuxis. So there are lots of problems with that source. It's not a historical account. And it's generally felt that the Galatians didn't have scythe chariots. They probably did have chariots, but it's highly unlikely they had scythe chariots. So I would say after Magnesia and other than Mithridates, this is where they start to drop out of use again. Or at least this is where we don't tend to hear about them that much. And once Rome manages to conquer like most of this region, the Romans are not interested in chariots in battle. And this ties into a lot of powers in the ancient world are not using chariots on the battlefield anymore. They use cavalry. Chariots are still important ceremonially, so they're great for processions, they're great for triumphs. You know, they look great and they're nice and flashy, but you don't use them on the battlefield because they're just not that great on the battlefield. Cavalry can do the same job and can do that job much better. Well, there you go. It seems like we've covered everything from the Persians to what well, you mentioned there, the Galatians, the Gauls in central Anatolia and central Turkey in the Anatolian period, which is really interesting in itself. Now, this has been a fantastic chat. Let's do one last tangent before we finish, because I've got it here in my notes. And that is another quirky animal and a military method that we know the Seleucids and others did use at this time. And this Sylvanan, we hear less of them, but they did use camel archers. Yes. Yeah, so these are another really interesting unit. I mean, the Seleucids are a Near Eastern empire. It's in the Middle East. So a lot of questions when people ask you is, did they use camels? You know, we know like the Arabians have camels. Did they use camels? And yes, I mean, of course, they're going to use camels in their baggage train. Camels have been used in baggage trains throughout history because they're notoriously good at endurance. They don't need as much water as horses. They're also less likely to panic under fire than other animals. So they're very good for that sort of thing. They're only good in certain climates. They're very susceptible to changes of climate. So you can only use them in certain places, but they're very, very good in baggage trains. And we've got plenty of evidence of that throughout lots of different armies. So I would say there's no reason to think the Seleucids are not using them in their baggage train. As for actually on the battlefield, as you say, this is something that we hear about, but it isn't very common. So the first instance we hear about camels being on the battlefield is again with Cyrus the Great. And Xenophon and Herodotus this time tell us that at the Battle of Sardis, Cyrus has camels and they scare Croesus's horses. The horses don't like the smell and the appearance of camels and they terrify the horses. And that fits with what we know about horses, like horses scared of elephants, they're scared. They don't like unusual smells and unusual appearances. So camels are great for that. They do very well there with Cyrus. Then we don't hear anything else of them until we get to this 
very strange battle of Magnesia, where everything just seems to be at Magnesia. It is just a very odd battle. And we're told that Antiochus has a contingent of Arabian camel archers there. And that fits. We know that these kind of camels come from Arabia and that sort of area. So that totally fits. And the question is, well, why has he got camel archers there? Has he decided, you know, he wants to use them? Or is it just coincidence? I personally would argue, because we don't hear of them elsewhere, that he didn't one day wake up and went, you know what we need? Camels. I would say he's more, he's told the Arabians we're going to war. You need to come with some men. And they've just turned up on camels because that's what they ride. And he's like, okay, we've got some camels. What do we do with these camels? He didn't plan to use camels. They just arrived with camels. And it's like, right, well, now we need to integrate them into the battle line. So these are put on the left wing as well. They're next to the chariots. So when the chariots cause chaos, they're caught up in that chaos. So unfortunately, we don't actually hear much about them. We're told they're on the left wing and that they're part of that chaos. We get some descriptions about what kind of weapons they have. So they're camel archers, so obviously they've got bows. Livy also tells us that they have a very long sword. He says it's four cubits long, so that's about nearly two metres long. And that seems, okay, that's huge. Now, when you think that camels themselves are about two metres tall in the shoulder, you think, well, if you're going to hit anyone on the ground, you're going to need a long sword, because otherwise you're not going to be able to reach them. And we do know of swords that were two metres long. So there's the medieval sword, the Zweihender, that has a blade that is two metres long. But to be honest, to wield that kind of sword, you tend to need to be on the ground and use both hands. So it's not really feasible mounted wise. So I would say maybe Livy isn't wrong that it is this big, but I would say it's a shorter blade on a longer pole, a bit like a glaive or the naginata, the sort of Chinese and Japanese weapons that we see. So like the glaive, that it's a shorter blade on a longer pole so that you can reach the people below you. So that tells us that these are very flexible troops. They can skirmish from a distance, they're archers. At the same time, they can have a sword so they can close in for close combat. So this is as much as we know about them because after we're told that they're in the Seleucid front line, we're not told about them again because obviously this wing collapses so we don't hear anything else about them. And that's kind of frustrating when we try and work out, well, what were they supposed to do? And I would argue that because they're on this wing, because they're not far from the Tarentines on this wing as well, the Tarentines are very interesting cavalry unit that likewise specialised in skirmishing from a distance and then closing in for close combat. So we're told that they specialised in throwing their first javelin, then moving their second javelin to their other hand whilst charging in for close combat. And that needs a lot of training to be able to charge while moving a javelin across your hands. So I would argue that because the Tarentines are this sort of flexible troop that they can skirmish from a distance and close for close combat and because the weapons of the camels seem like they could do a similar thing my theory is that they're supposed to work together and possibly as i said protect the chariots so they can protect the chariots from a distance they can then close in for close combat as that fighting gets underway now obviously this is theoretical this doesn't happen at magnesia the whole wing collapses and nothing happens the camels don't do anything other than add to the chaos And that's unfortunate, so we don't really know. So it's our best guess as to what we think they were supposed to do. We don't hear of them elsewhere in the Seleucid army. So it's hard to know what they were doing. 
And as I said, I don't think it's a case that Antiochus went, I need some camels for my army. I think it's more a case of, he tells the Arabians, we're going to war, bring your men. They arrive on camels and he's like, great, well, you know, this helps advertise how extensive my power is. Look at all these different troops in my army. I've got elephants, I've got camels, I've got chariots, I've got all these men. Let's overawe the Romans with this. But I think it's more that they just turn up with them and he integrates them that way. Some people might suggest, well, does he just put them on the wing because, oh, those are weird, we don't know what they are, just put them out of the way. And I would say, well, if he wanted to do that, there were better places he could put them than right at the front of his army. So my argument is that if he puts them at the front in such a prominent position, he did mean to use them. And I would say they're meant to work with that lighter cavalry for skirmishing and close combat. And that was the intention, even if that's not what happened in reality. Well, I mean, there you go. Yes, skirmishing capability, close combat capability, they sound like they may be almost like an Arabian elite, which they're sent to Antiochus, you know, which they have to send these elite units. And of course, Tarentines are also sometimes seen as quite elite light cavalry. Sylvanan, I also love the idea of Antiochus waking up one day and just saying, you know what we need? We need camels and we need them now. But of course, as you say, it's probably not what happened. But I love that idea anyways. Right, Sylvanan, a little extra bit on top of this podcast on chariots and camel archers, because there's one particular, I don't know if we can call this a chariot or wagon that the Romans use against Pyrrhus, which just sounds absolutely the most bizarre of all. Yeah, so this is at the Battle of Asculum in 279 BC, and the Romans are really concerned about Pyrrhus's elephants at this point. They've seen them, they don't really like them, they're not that great with them. And they come up with this really bizarre anti-elephant wagon. And we get the descriptions of them and they just sound completely insane. They've got like flamethrowers on them and torches and then spinning scythes or spinning blades and other spikes. And they just sound incredibly bizarre. It's like, it's as if they've decided to stick every weapon imaginable on this. I get this impression, it's like, you know, if you asked a five-year-old to come up with this sort of like, battle wagon it kind of feels like something that a little kid would do or like you ask them to draw it and it's exactly what they draw and needless to say in the actual battle these wagons are a mess they don't do anything they're just far too overly complicated but they are really really bizarre really really bizarre and shall we say this is the closest the romans ever come to creating a scythed chariot of their own yeah even though it this is not a chariot this is a wagon i mean they're pulled by oxen and the scythes are even I think they're supposed to be spinning. It's like, it's just so overly complicated. It's like, no, no, just simplify, guys, simplify. Sylvanan, this has been a brilliant chat on all these incredible ancient Seleucid, Seleucid methods of war. Thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the show. Thank you very much for having me back. It's been a pleasure. I love talking about all these unusual and unconventional battle tactics and battle weapons and things. It's great. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.